RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. I came across this letter in a collection with the signature of one of my favorites, the writer and wit Dorothy Parker. And the letter is so her. 83 Norma Place, Hollywood, California. Dear Joshua, Alan told me to write and apologize. I'm doing that now while he dresses for turkey dinner with the boys across the road. I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. I'm sure that I must have said something terrible. To save me this kind of exertion in the future, I'm thinking of having little letters run off saying, can you ever forgive me, Dorothy? Except that Dorothy Parker didn't actually write or sign that letter. Lee Israel did. Her book, called Can You Ever Forgive Me, tells the story of her years as a literary con artist, forging letters by all sorts of famous writers and then selling them. The memoir was just adapted into a terrific new film, also called Can You Ever Forgive Me? It stars Melissa McCarthy as Israel. Wasn't this... uh... One line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. With the film now in theaters, I wanted to revisit my conversation with the real Lee Israel. She died in 2014, but I talked to her when her memoir came out in 2008. So that isn't by Dorothy Parker at all. Well, there's one line, the best line. Can you guess which it is? Well, that's really Dorothy. This, I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. So the title of your book is from this purported letter by Dorothy Parker, but it's a Lee Israel line. Yes. I imagine Dorothy uh, apologizing in her waif-like way for some misdeed. Uh, and uh, and I sat down and I wrote. It's uh, in the spirit of kind of uh, jus d'esprit. So how did you get the idea for this this racket of of forging famous people's letters and selling them to dealers? Well, it started, it was incremental, as most things are in life. Um, I I was in the library, where I spent most of my time foraging, and they gave me a group of, of letters, and I thought perhaps even one or two of those could pay for, for my, my kitty's uh, tests, and I, I shooed it. I took it, I walked out of the library, and I, I sold it. And I was told by the, the woman who bought my letters that, uh, which I didn't know anything about the business, but she would pay more for better content. So I went home and I typed up some better content. And then when you started forging after that instead of stealing, what, what was the first thing you forged? Actually, I don't remember where I started. I have a feeling. Let me think. I, I know it wasn't Dorothy. I think the, f- the first things I forged were Noel Coward letters. And you bought not just one, but a whole series of antique typewriters on which to do this Yeah, work. well, finally, if I had no old type on one typewriter and Dorothy on another and and uh, Edna Ferber on yet another. And uh, I, finally, I had about six or seven of them in a locker I rented on Amsterdam Avenue. It looked like a very classy porn shop. That is pawn shop, not a porn shop. <laughs> not a porn shop, no. <laughs> And... It's amazing how little regulation there is. I mean, for instance, the Noel Coward letters, some of them were published in an anthology of his correspondence. That's right. Recently, in a highly regarded, well-reviewed book called The Letters of Noel Coward. And uh, there were two of my letters showed up in, in that uh, volume. Can we hear one of your Noel Coward letters? Okay. i got to find it. All right. I'll, I'll, I just, this, dear Kevin, Sunday, 
And at the the letterhead is Les Avants sur Montreuse. Pardon my French. <laughs> Dear Kevin, I am uh, who doesn't exist. I am feeling years younger, having luge this morning over perfectly packed snow. There is no substitute for oxygen in the lungs. It seems to release something very like morphine. Marlene, as I, Marlene, as I perhaps mentioned to you when we spoke, was here for almost a week. She will never change, and to try to force her is folly. She moans endlessly about the ravages of aging, the betrayal of friends, the loneliness of celebrity. The silly old kraut addresses each of these problems as if she were the only beautiful and celebrated creature to experience reversals. I intend to have her in my life until one of us croaks, but she is possibly the most jejune grandmother in the history of our planet. It's a very good thing that I love her. I laughed uproariously at your dogged doggerel, yours ever, Noel. It's Lee Israel's version of, <laughs> of Noel Coward. And they were among the best letters, I think. Of his? Well... What you know? I'll tell you why. Because he, Kurt, because he didn't have to be Noel Coward when he wrote letters. He was writing letters. I had to try hard. I had to be Noel Coward, and so they were. They were cavorted. They camped. They they jumped high, jetted around. I mean, he didn't write letters like that. I was I was doing it to please dealers and to do an imitation of this terrific man who didn't have to try to be Noel Coward. How did you did you have to try to get into character? How much did you immerse yourself in their work? Did you put on a hat like they wore or poured yourself a drink? What did you do? I never poured myself a drink because, uh, you know, who was it who said John Cheever, that old womanizing alcoholic said, even a sip of sherry shows in his prose. So I never I never drink when I ride. I just I immerse myself in that wonderful thing that happens to creative people, uh, a kind of trance. The creative trance, it's as, right. it's as good as it gets. Right. We'll have more of my interview with Lee Israel in just a minute. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio 360 Show. And now, back to the podcast. Now, let's, let's rewind. Before you ever got into this, you were a successful biographer. When I was in my early 30s, I, I wrote a book about Dorothy Kilgallen. I wrote a book about uh, Tallulah Bankhead. I did finally a book that wasn't so good about Estee Lauder. After the Lauder book, um, my lights dimmed a bit, and they stopped taking me to lunch. And and you were on welfare, and, and it was it was really rough. It, it wasn't was just terrible. It wasn't just that you were no longer a bestseller. What is rough? I mean, I wasn't eating roots in Niger. But <laughs> yeah. in terms of my life, it was bad. It was, uh, I was alone. Yeah. She was alone. And you, had, and, you had, and you had a sick cat as well. I had a sick to cat. To add to the romance of the whole thing. And how much did you get for that? Those first uh, I think they're $40 a piece, something like that. So it wasn't a lot of money per letter. I mean, 40 bucks. 40 bucks uh, allowed me to take the, my cat to the vet and find out maybe what was wrong with her. It was enough to keep me, as I say, finally in, uh, in lunch and cigarettes and, and rent. It was not a lot of money. In terms of the letters you forged, uh, apart from the marketability of a given author or figure, how, how did you choose who who you wanted to do? I've, I've been thinking about that. I I know that I have certain cri- had certain criteria uh, w- which had to be met. The uh, the signature mostly had to be doable, easy. So Edna, for instance, Edna Ferber or some, Edna or Ferb, she signed her letters with a period. Very simple writing, no no loops, no swirls, no no uh, jumps. 
Uh, same thing, Knowles was well a little harder. Uh, Dorothy Parker had an easy uh, signature. They had to uh, present a challenge to me. They had to have literary epistolary styles that I thought I could duplicate and have fun doing. And I guess those are the criteria. Well, the have fun is interesting to me because they are also nearly all uh, sort of soigné, naughty people of a certain <laughs> period. Yeah, yeah. And a certain certain habits with alcohol and of a certain age, which meant that if I shook a little in the signature, it wouldn't tell so much. Uh-huh. But they would all, you know, you, one would want to go to the cocktail party with all most of these people. Anyway. All of them, except yeah. maybe Edna Furby. I was going to say. <laughs> Um, how many letters did you write in all? I think about 400. Really? Yeah, you can see that. You can see as we sit, there's a loose leaf with copies so of everything. So basically two or three a week for the three years, something like that. I guess I didn't. You do the math. I, I, did, I did them whenever I needed to do them. There was one dealer in New Hampshire who would call and say, do you have something, uh, uh, Greta Garbo, or have you something which George Cukor has mentioned? <laughs> now, I could, I always satisfied his demands. Now, what did he think? I mean, really. And what would you say? Uh, yeah, maybe I do. I, yeah, I have a feeling. They may, be, they may be in the country, you know, like I had a country home. Uh, I'll check. And I, I always, uh, I wasn't I, not even smart enough to say, oh, no, I couldn't. I, I always, you know, it was 80 90 $100. And... It was the Noel Coward letters that finally done me in yeah. because I, I overdid and because one of the uh, one of his friends who was in the market to buy Noel Coward letters was shown some of mine and knew full well that Noel, having lived at a time when homosexuality was a jailing offense, never would have put so many campy, mm-hmm. funny allusions uh, in his letters. And the stuff that's uh, homoerotic, et cetera, I got from his, his diaries. But Noel would have been much too careful to disclose as I did. What happened finally is that when once the man, the friend of Noel's, uh, discerned that there was something rotten in Denmark, he told the dealer who told other dealers, and, and finally the well was toxic, and I could no longer sell. And then as soon as the, the, the federal agents showed themselves, they didn't arrest you immediately. You, you went off trying, thinking you were going to get rid of the typewriters, destroy the evidence? Got rid of everything I could get my hands on. I scissored everything. I, I took the typewriters from the locker one by one, and they were very heavy. You know, we're talking 1940s, 1950s. And I placed them up and down various trash receptacles on Amsterdam Avenue. So you were you were finally nabbed, prosecuted, went to trial. You got off pretty easy. I did. Well, I had what well, I got six months house arrest, which is not so easy if you saw my apartment at the time. Not only did you not go to jail, you you have this uh, lovely book that's come out that is getting good reviews and and kind of kind attention. Nobody that I've seen seems to be saying, "How dare this." thief and forger get well, away with this. I know, and I'm relieved, but I, I have a knowledge that what I did was uh, was wrong. But I don't, I don't feel that uh, in the pit of my stomach. The bloggers are not being so, so kind. That's what bloggers do. I know. One of them called me a twit, and I hope he spelled it right. Somebody else called me an intellectual terrorist. I mean, so that happens. But mostly the, the, the community of writers and no, not so much scholars uh, of, of writers and, and peers are, are, are liking it and uh, are being very kind to me and non-judgmental. I know what I did was wrong. Honest, Your Honor. <laughs> Lee Israel, I want to thank you very much for coming in. Thank you.
I had that conversation in 2008 with Lee Israel, who died four years ago. The film Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy, is in theaters now. That interview, by the way, when we aired it on Studio 360, touched a nerve with some listeners who thought I was way too nice to her. You treat Lee Israel's admitted theft of manuscripts from library archives as a sort of lark, a form of literary adventure, Molly Nelson Haber wrote us. But her actions have made it all the more difficult for independent scholars such as myself to gain access to invaluable materials. Fair enough. And here's what Mary Rawson wrote from Pittsburgh. Lee Israel's crime is appalling and not at all victimless. Think of the dealers, the readers, the people referred to in the letters she invented, and finally the writers she had such fun impersonating. One last thing before we go. If you like listening to this podcast as much as we like making it, let the world know by rating us on iTunes. Not to flatter us. It actually helps other listeners discover Studio 360. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 